Welcome to Stageworthy. I'm Phil Rickaby, the host of this podcast. This is episode 324. If you're listening to this on Tuesday, May 24th, or during the week until May 27th, make sure you check out the Stageworthy Instagram for a chance to win tickets to one of my favorite theater companies in Toronto, Eldritch Theater, and their new show, Two Weird Tales. I don't want to say too much. I'm really excited for this show, and I really want you to see it too. Stageworthy is a one-person operation, so not only do I arrange the guests, I also edit the show, I promote it, and I also created the music that you can hear under what I'm saying now. I also shoulder all of the financial responsibilities for keeping the show going, so if you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting it. There are a few ways that you can do that. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those ratings and reviews help new people to find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And you can also leave a tip for the show by dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. I will put a link to that in the show notes, which you can find on the website or in your podcast app. But one of the most important things that you can do, even more important than ratings, reviews, or even financial support, is to share on social media. Even a retweet helps. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 324 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and as I mentioned, my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Santiago Guzman. Santiago is a writer, performer, director, and producer for theater based in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador. He is also the artistic director of Todos Productions, an organization that seeks to promote, produce, and support work of underrepresented artists in Newfoundland and Labrador. Here's our conversation. So you're in you're in St. John's, Newfoundland, right now. That's correct. Wow. Yeah, this is home. What's the? Is it? Are you still winter there? Are you? Well, I mean, I was very hopeful um, yesterday where the weather was absolutely gorgeous. I was like, I think I walked around the city just wearing a a vest and, you Mm. know, my bloodstones and it was great. And today it started snowing again. So (laughs) I was like, okay, spring is not around the corner as I thought it would be. That sounds like a Canadian spring slash winter to me. Yeah. What is it we call yeah. it? We call it false spring, uh, the spring of our discontent, the uh, fool's spring. There's all kinds of levels of spring before we actually get to the the real thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. as 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 somebody who grew up in Mexico, how has what's your winter experience been? Well, I mean. Um, it has been, I mean, for the past, uh, six years, I have spent Christmas here in, in Canada. Um, so, so like that, I feel like my, I, I, I guess I hold on to these like memories of like, oh, you remember that time with the posada and piñata, (laughs) you know, like all of these like traditional Mexican things that Mm. I grew up doing, uh, or, or eating or, um, yeah, anyway, so 
I think that mm, Christmas time or like the holidays, like winter really in, in Mexico has always been cold. Mm. Well, that's what I thought. <laughs> um, when I was when I was in Mexico, I really thought that those uh, Christmases were very cold, you know, like we would wear our thickest jackets. And then when I moved here, I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's not it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, anyway, it has been an adjustment. I feel like, um, obviously, you know, the snow, if, yeah, like you have to talk about the snow if you're talking to an immigrant, of uh, course. they're very, very different feelings about it. I, I love seeing seeing it snow like but i don't love being outside in the snow um if that makes any sense so i feel like especially you know from all the places that i could have moved mm -hmm. i moved to newfoundland and labrador which is you know one of the the coldest provinces in the country um but i don't regret it and i guess it's just because the people here are really really warm <laughs> so they keep me warm here you are not you are not alone in the idea of, of, you know, it's really nice to look at this snow. Um, it's best from indoors, unless you're one of those strange people who really enjoys winter sports. But, um, you know, like I, I feel like I usually don't practice any like winter outdoors, anything just because yeah, I guess I didn't grow up doing them. So yeah. or practicing them. So I, I had zero interest, but it's usually my friends that are like either local or that I s are so into it that I just let myself try those things and, you know, see what happens. And sometimes I do enjoy them. So anyway, that's well, interesting. That's, that's good. I mean, it's good to try them. It's good to try them. Um, my problem with most of them is that I don't enjoy the cold. And yeah. so you kind of have to enjoy a face full of snow now and then for a lot of the winter sports. And I just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. I, I, you know, I, when I am like out in the cold and I feel like my face freeze and I feel like <laughs> sometimes <laughs> I say, Oh, this is what uh, having bo Botox feels like. <laughs> um, and I'm like, mm, maybe I should consider. But then I'm like, no, something. You're just cold. It's you're it's just, so cold. <laughs> cold. It's just cold. Um, as a as a writer and performer and director, um, you did you is that something that you did in Mexico? What what is the story of of deciding to 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 move from Mexico to Newfoundland? Mm, well, I I moved here um seven years ago because i wanted to pursue an acting career i think that i mean i thought that that was just like the case in mexico where you know like the arts were just thought as these like careers that people would do for a hobby or you know like that there was not a lot of like seriousness around it that's what i thought when i was in mexico so uh, I was actually going to pursue a a career in communications in Mexico because I was so afraid of, you know, all of these things that people always say about like, how are you going to live from theater? How are you going to do this? How are you going to build a family and blah, 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 blah. So I wanted to pursue communications while also pursuing acting because I thought that I would have like a backup plan. And I say that in quotation marks, obviously. Um, but then I went to, uh, I, I, you know, I already had my plan, my life planned. I had everything, uh, set up for me to stay in Mexico and get my communications degree and all of these things. And then I went to the, um, 
to the open house at the university where I asked, so, you know, like, I'm so passionate about theater. Is there a way that your degree would, you know, like, um, intersect with theater? And the, the, um, one of the teachers there looked at me and said, Santiago, this is a business school. We are here to do business. <laughs> If you want to pursue theater, go to London, go to New York, go somewhere else, but not here. And then that moment, I was like, I was so, at first I was distraught because I, I had my life planned out. And then that was an opportunity for me. I think that my dad, um, who, you know, the fun fact, he's a, an industrial chemical engineer. So when I told him that I wanted to pursue the arts, he almost, you know, <laughs> wanted me to take the, um, his last name out of my name. <laughs> uh, but Uh, then, you know, like he actually got to understand my passion and, and that I was actually not that bad at it. Um, so he was very supportive. He has always been, uh, I'm really grateful for that. And so he said to me, well, why don't you actually listen to this person and find something else? Now, my dad never thought that I would move to Newfoundland and Labrador. Mm -hmm. um, he thought, you know, like that I would maybe stay in Mexico or move to Mexico City or to a bigger city, Guadalajara, Monterrey, I don't know. And um, but then it just happened. I, I started looking at universities elsewhere uh, outside of, of Mexico, just, you know, dreaming, because again, moving to another country was always like a dream, but something that is like so far away from actually happening, at least that's what I thought. And then I was considering moving to Ontario, to Toronto specifically, and pursue a career there. And then, you know, like I looked at the tuition there and I was like, okay, yeah, this is not going to happen. And my dad said to me, Santiago, I love you and I want to support you, but we cannot afford this. I was like, you know what? Fair enough. That's okay. And I thought I was like, well, that's it. You know, like, no, I'm definitely staying in Mexico. When then I went to a college fair in Mexico City, uh, where all of these universities from across the country had a little booth and there was only one, the university here at, um, Newfoundland and Labrador uh, had um, the only university in, in this province um, had a BFA in acting. And I was like, okay. And the other universities were offering like theater, um, like workshops or, or summer, you know, camps or whatever. But I really wanted to look for like a BFA um, at the time because I, well, first of all, because I didn't understand the difference between the college and the university format. Um, and I just thought that the university format would also make my parents feel comfortable and, mm. you know, feel that I was actually pursuing a career. And, and yeah, so I, I applied to the university. Also, Phil, if I'm being completely honest, I was really afraid of rejection. Mm. I was really afraid of dealing with being rejected. I did consider applying to the National Theater School in, in Mexico City, but I felt that I didn't want to deal with that rejection. There was always, you know, I, I guess it happens to all of us that we have a little voice in our head say, saying, you're not good enough, mm -hmm. um, you're not worth it. Mm. And that I didn't want to deal with that. And so the the way that that worked out for me to apply to come here i only had to do a self tape and at the time you know like that's seven years ago where hmm. i <laughs> my god it was a, a really it was a show in itself but like doing a, a self tape um 
seven years ago was completely different. But I thought to myself, well, if I only have to do a self-tape and I don't know them, they don't know me, if I get rejected, it will be easier for me to deal with that rejection. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I thought that that would be the case. And well, lucky for me, because I didn't have any like plan B or anything, I only applied to this university and I got in. Now, it wasn't until I, I was in my in my second uh, year of university that it, it actually clicked. I was like, Santiago, what, what have you done? What did you do? Uh, because I, I have, you know, when I was in Mexico, I've mainly focused on, on acting. That was my priority. And that was the thing that I was excited about. Um, I had directed like one, uh, play, but I was really, really drawn to acting. And at the time I was obviously, you know, well, I thought I was bilingual and by what I mean was that I was able to communicate in English properly and engage in a conversation, but Mm. I was not actually bilingual. And it was until it wasn't until I was here that I realized I was like Santiago, like how do you think that you're gonna do a career in your second language that it actually requires you to speak? <laughs> mm. <laughs> like how are you going to do that? Like and the thing was that I, to me, the most interesting thing about my my career and or the degree that I was pursuing at the time was figuring out how to perform in my second language, which was something that nobody taught me how to do, not even my professors. And, mm. and actually they didn't know what to do with me because, you know, that is a very different experience when you were not born speaking a language and mm. then you are acting in said language. So I had to develop a, um, my own system for it. Can I ask you, like, so many things I want to ask about. First of all, that that teacher who told you uh, that we teach business here. What a favor that person did for you. I know. And you know, like the funny thing was that, again, I mean, I say it as though this is not going to go anywhere, but <laughs> this this person, like his his son was a, a dear friend of mine who was a, a film actor. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, mm? uh, and and I thought, I was like, I just don't understand why you're pushing me away. Like if mm. your own son is pursuing a very similar career. Now, I think that uh, his son actually stayed in Mexico and I think he's still, I think now he's a film director, I think. Mm. Um, But anyway, yeah, in the end I do. And sometimes I wonder if I should just send him a letter and say, thank you so much. Like that was the (laughs) best thing you could have ever done to me. (laughs) Well, because it's interesting because it it immediately told you this is not the place for you. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. there are so many other ways that that could have been approached. They could have been, you know, yes, we're going to teach about communication. And yes, we mostly focus on business, but there is a business aspect to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they could have done that, but no, they didn't. They sort of told you that this was not the place for you. And and it's interesting because, you know, like uh, to this day, I feel like business is such an important part of what I do. Mm. And even like my partner, who is a business person, he is always so impressed by how I carry my business. And he's like, I just don't understand. I thought that you were a theater maker. And I was like, uh, yeah, and a business person, <laughs> excuse you. And and I think that like, for instance, that was one of the things that I didn't learn, learn at university, uh, how to deal with the business of theater creation and, 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 you know, like filmmaking. And I have come to learn those in my own practice. But uh, yeah, at the same time, I, I, I agree. I think that they 
did me a good one with, you know, letting me go and saying, yeah, this is not the right place for you. And look at me now. Yeah. The, 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 the thing is that, that, that idea of, of, of a business is that is, that is actually such a rare attitude to have. It's very rare that we encounter people that I encounter people. And that I think most people encounter people in the theater world who think about what they're doing as a business. Um, but it is, we get caught up in the art of it and things like that. But, um, and that's what often keeps people away from producing, from creating their own work, from really developing uh, uh, that 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 aspect is the idea that that what you're doing is a business. And so because it's a business, you have to figure out how you're going to make money. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, to me, theater is like, yes, it's business, but it's also community, right? And And I think a lot about about how with that business, because the thing is, I take my job very seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know, I think that I am worth and my stories and every single thing I do is worth my time. Hence, I should be paid for it. Mm -hmm. And because of it, you know, like that, this is my business. This is how I pay my bills. And it has always been my intention, even being an immigrant to this country where um, the, the government is not set up for artists to succeed, especially immigrant artists. So I think that, that I find that really interesting when, you know, like my, at least on my legal journey in this country where I haven't been able to really, you know, like to fully develop my artistry because of, of those legalities. But at the end of the day, I'm like, well, I do make money from my work and I should be making money from my work. So how can I do that? But not, not only how can I do that for me, but also how can I do that for the people working around me, working with me, collaborating with me, because we are all worthy of, of that. And, and it is important to me in the way that I work that that is acknowledged first and foremost, but also I think about the impact I, I mean, theater is like, I think is the love of my life. <laughs> and I, I just think I have so much love and respect for it. And I also think a lot about the impact of theater, not only, you know, to my life, but also to others. And how do we use this vehicle for storytelling and, and building relationships and community that is also so ingrained in, in what I do. One thing that sort of I'm leading away from 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 what you were saying about about um, how because of the fact that you're an immigrant to this country that you haven't really been able to take it to use some of the the resources of of grants and things like that. I'm curious as somebody who who has looked at what they're doing as a business, but hasn't been able to to sort of like lean on the granting system. Do you? And this is like this. I don't know, might be controversial. Um, do you think that as Canadian artists, we rely too much on the grants? Oof. Uh, <laughs> that, is, that is a good question. I mean, yes. I, I think that there is, if I'm being completely honest, I think that without those grants, a lot of artists wouldn't be able to you know, to, to perhaps try and grow and mm. learn from, uh, this, this thing that we call theater making. So indeed, I think that that is, uh, definitely a, a positive thing. Now, let me tell you something. When I was in Mexico, because of the lack of the support from the government, theater was not seeing, 
as something professional, you know, like uh, at least here. Uh, and now this is my perspective mm-hmm. when I was 18, you know, like years ago. Um, so at the time I never actually considered theater being a career because of that, because there were not a lot of support uh, by the government here. I am always amazed by how much support the government mm. gives to artists. And, and I think that that is something outstanding. Yeah. I think that at the end of the day, we may be relying a lot on those grants, but without that support, we wouldn't be able to thrive, mm. to grow, to fail, mm-hmm. to, to learn. So I think that that is something really great about the, the granting system. Now, of course, for me personally, as, a, as an immigrant who for the longest time did not have access to any of the funding opportunities available, it was tricky because mm-hmm. then I had to convince um, a, a larger organization or an institution that I was worthy. I had to convince them that my stories were interesting or that they would sell, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I actually, luck, luckily, I never got to that point of like talking about, you know, like my show will sell. So that's why you should get me. Um, but, uh, but, you know, like, I think that there was, there was something about the lack of agency in me saying, this is the show that I want to do because I want to, mm-hmm. and not because I feel like I am fitting in someone else's mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I have managed to build a career even with the, with those limitations because again, I just, I'm very passionate about this. And, and I guess with my own learning of like how to navigate the system, I have also been able to support others around me mm-hmm. that are also, you know, maybe considering theater as a, as an option for a career. Hmm. Yeah. One of the other things that you mentioned right before we started talking about, about uh, about that is is the idea of of how you came up with your own method for acting in a language that you was not native to you. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you develop that, and what did that look like? <laughs> Have you ever heard of this uh, fella named Shakespeare? Yes, yes, yeah, heard of him. <laughs> well, um, when I moved, uh, and one of the reasons why I also moved to to an English speaking country was because I knew that going into into, you know, uh, whatever acting career I wanted to pursue, Shakespeare was going to come up. And at the time, I thought that, you know, like Shakespeare, uh, well, as I said, my my English or my understanding of, of the English language was pretty decent. So I thought to myself, well, we will obviously going to talk about the the Greek theater. I don't speak Greek, but I do speak English. So what if I actually study how, you know, Shakespeare is supposed to be performed in its original language. Hmm. Um, So that was one of the catalysts uh, as well for me to find an English speaking country to study. Um, Now, when I moved here, I wasn't taught how to perform Shakespeare, even though they were asking me to present Shakespeare Hmm. monologues. Um, At school, they were, they didn't teach me until I was in my third year of university. So it was kind of late in the game, right? But I was still very eager and still very intimidated when I got to my third mm-hmm. year of university and had to deal with um, with Shakespeare. And what was so amazing to me was that I remember when we were in, in our third year 
um, uh, Jeanette Lamberborn Mori was my my Shakespeare teacher. Who I mean, who else than Jeanette Lamberborn Mori to teach you how to perform Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. Um, so she was the one who who taught me, and I remember you know, when we were talking about the process and, you know, like tackling like heightened language and and all of these like methods that we learned, I realized that my process was very similar to what the thing that I was already doing with Hmm. the other monologues that I was performing, even, you know, like whatever thing I was performing in in English. So I realized I was like, oh my God, like this is exactly the same thing that I already do. And I remember my classmates saying, oh my God, this is a lot of work. This is so hard. And I literally remember turning to them and saying, yeah, welcome to my world. This is what I do. And the thing was that Shakespeare, and the reason why I love Shakespeare, I also have some issues with Shakespeare, but I do love Shakespeare because it's the only time for me as an English as a second language performer I feel like I am playing on even ground mm. with fellow performers mm. whose tongue is English because we all have to go through the same process. This is our, basically our extra language. It would be my third language for me mm. might be a second language for someone else. So it just, I remember like the joy of being finally in a place where we were all on the same boat uh, in terms of language, obviously. And that was very exciting. So without knowing I had already developed a system that then was reinforced to me through Shakespeare. I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> this is awfully familiar. It's fascinating because the, anytime that I've performed Shakespeare and it is you, you mentioning this sort of reminds me of the fact that when we're, we're doing Shakespeare, the first thing we do is we spend a day or more going through the script, making sure we all understand what the words mean. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It's only in really Shakespeare. I mean, other classical texts as well that will do that. But for the most part, since Shakespeare is ubiquitous and probably one of the most, at least in Canada and in England, one of the more common uh, uh, classical texts is we all sit down and we have to figure out, do we all agree on what the, these words mean? And that, again, is sort of a thing that you that you were doing. And it's it's necessary to to figure out uh, so that we all understand, so that our audience can understand, because the audience is essentially having to be attuned to language that they don't necessarily understand as well. Exactly. But but the thing is, Phil, that I think that that should apply to everything. And, and I mean, what a gift I, I received coming here, because uh, sure, when I was back in Mexico, mm. I was not doing this, you know, like mm. I was not looking up the Spanish words. I mean, the words that I didn't know what they meant or what they, you know, how to pronounce them or whatever. Yeah, I I did that process, but really engaging in that rich way with the language is something that I took for granted when I was performing in Spanish. And, and I, I have come to realize the importance. And now that I'm a playwright as well, like I spend significant amount of time figuring out the language of my pieces, Mm. um, especially because I also do a lot of like um, English and Spanish uh, scripts Mm. So that, you know, I I think that there is a lot of value in the way that, you know, these words have been arranged on a piece of paper. And in my directing, I really, for me as a director, I try to, the first thing is for me to understand the text Mm -hmm. as though I was, I was going to perform it because it is important to me to make sure that the, that the actor that I'm working with is also understanding 
of of the text, even though that might be their first language. Mm-hmm. I think that it's so important for us to have that clarity. I mean, I mean, English can be somebody's first language, but there there are words that not everybody knows. There are contexts that not everybody knows. There's there's so much work that can be done and should be done on mm-hmm. a on a script. Just because it's in it's in the colloquial or modern English doesn't mean that we shouldn't investigate it in much the same way. Yeah, well, and the same thing happens with you know like inside jokes mm. and references. Like I like I didn't get a lot of them. I still don't. <laughs> so that's why I have to do that research mm. that I, you know, I think, and maybe this is a hot take, but I think I am a very good actor because I my job is to make you feel like these words that I'm about to say are coming from my heart when I wasn't born speaking this language. So if you believe my my emotional journey while I speak these English words, I think I have done a really, really good job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned being a writer, and mm-hmm. I'm curious, as a writer myself, I'm always curious about people's writing journeys. Mm-hmm. Was writing something that you did when you were a child, or is it something that's new to you? It's relatively new. I mean, you know, <laughs> I can also say, oh, I have been working since I have been writing since I was a child. Uh, I mean, sure, I was writing like whatever. I Well, when I was in high school, in junior high, I wrote a play, a, a Christmas pageant. Mm. Um, so, you know, like I did that, but I, I did that because I felt like I was tired of the Santa Claus play. I was tired of the nativity play. So I was like, okay, no, let's do, let's spice it up uh, this time around. Um, so anyway, I wrote a play that it was really fun for me to write and also be in it. But um, but yeah, like recently I have embraced uh, playwriting now for uh, for different reasons. And one being, I think that to me, playwriting is an act of rebellion. Mm. Um, and it has been an act of rebellion because for the longest time, I never saw myself on stage. I never saw my communities on stage. Um, I, the stories that we were telling or that my friends and I were telling were not reflected on local stages. And I thought that that was a big, big, huge gap. And the thing was like, I mean, personally, as a performer trying to make it in the, you know, in the theater scene, I was always being cast in these like background roles and you know like these Mm -hmm. supporting roles Mm -hmm. that are clearly just serving the white uh narrative and i got tired of it i got really disappointed by it because i could tell that i well and i mean i i guess i'm not being objective here but i thought that i had something to offer that i was able to perform the boots down of a of a text like i really thought that i could do that work Mm. but i was never given that opportunity so I began writing my own material, just clearly showing what I, what I was able to do. And, and I think that part of like my, um, how I can measure that success is when people say, you know, people had said to me, wow, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> it's like, well, because I was never given the chance. Um, <laughs> so I guess that proves my point. It's so... I mean, I think that that's, that's been a problem that that um, Canadian and English theater has been contending with or facing and only recently has started to address, I, you know, kudos to the Stratford Festival in the past year for uh, really buckling down and, and examining the bias that it's had uh, with okay. people who are on stage. But oftentimes in 
in the theaters and in the schools, often the teachers are white and they carry their own, they carry biases and they carry their own blinders. Uh, And often with, with people who are uh, 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 people of color, if they're black, if they're indigenous, if they are not white, they often find, have a quote unquote, a difficult time figuring quote, figuring out what to do with them instead Mm -hmm. of like, I get so frustrated when people are like, Oh, we're going to cast all the white people. Is this, we're going to do this. Like, Oh, we can't cast these people together because they don't look like a family. Well, what does a family look like in, in theater? We, people suspend this quote unquote disbelief Mm -hmm. more than they do in a film. Theater is our opportunity to put exactly what we see on the streets, all the, the multicultural, all the multicolored, uh, everything on the stage and have people just accept it. I always get frustrated when people get stuck quote unquote mm-hmm. stuck on this binary yeah I, I think that that's exactly right you know where um i feel like for the longest time people were seeing me in the surface you know like the things that they could see so my brown skin my curly hair um perhaps my accent like all of these things that i was like well but you're not seeing beyond me and and not to say that those things aren't relevant to me because of course that experience me holding on uh, onto this body that you know like uh, drives me around the world that has shaped my experience and has shaped my my way of thinking but you know like sometimes i i am a person i am a sibling uh i am a partner all of these things that go beyond um race language culture like i think that at the at the core you know like we're we're talking about human values and and i think that that goes beyond anything else and and the thing about representation i mean to me it is so important in the work mm-hmm. that i do and mm-hmm. and i guess obviously i started writing a lot of like mexican stories because or well i mean not even mexican stories uh, they're characters from mexico in newfoundland and labrador i mean <laughs> mm-hmm. talk about being specific but i think that i wrote those stories because that was like my my lived experience and and i thought to myself where i well i am a part of this community and my community are not seeing me and if they don't see me can they see someone else and in the work that I do, I try to do that as much as possible to to share those opportunities and to say, okay, yes, here I am, but here is also this person and this person and that person. So it's not only about me. One of the things I think about representation and, and how important it is, is when we don't have diverse representation on our stages, we are essentially telling our audience that what is on the stage is what we are and who we welcome. Yeah. And it essentially shuts off anybody who does not match what we're putting on the stage. Mm -hmm. You know, we can tell them, sure, come and see this, but we're not really producing this for you. And it's such a closed minded, uh, uh, just a terror, like just, it's so small Mm -hmm. for the theater world. And it's so much more interesting to, to bring the world that's actually on the street onto mm-hmm. the stage and share that and bring all of the experiences and all of the people together. Yeah. And I think like something that I also want to say about that is that just because, you know, like say we are seeing a, a diverse or a racialized experience on stage, that doesn't mean that 
it is only for those people, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like that, I, that happens a lot with my work. I find that people say, you know, like I, I, I'm, I'm always saying like, Oh, this play is about a, a queer young uh, Mexican man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and so people assume that the play is for only Mexicans or, only for for queer people mm-hmm. and people have said that like openly to me where they are like how why would i why should i consume your queer content and mm-hmm. i'm like uh why should i consume the straight content <laughs> then, you know that i am forced to con- yeah. to to consume so i think that yes absolutely it's this thing about representation and how important it is to say you have a space here mm-hmm. but also the, the the thing that i would ask back is to the audiences and say but you know are you also making space for yeah. these stories that are not only yours mm. um because i feel like that's also lacking yes absolutely it's kind of we we saw this this sort of thing recently with uh, some people's reactions to the the pixar film turning red like oh my god yeah so much so many people were like well you know, I can't see myself in this story of a young Chinese girl. And it's so such a beautiful story that if people would just sort of sit and watch it without, I don't know, being stupid, um, I mean, there's so I, much that would get out of it. If, if I can relate to Cinderella, mm. they can relate to turning red. Right. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. Because it's, it, good storytelling and good story and good character is good storytelling and good character, regardless of, of of skin color language everything else exactly oh my gosh absolutely and that was the thing that i feel like i have been forced and it's not a choice phil i have been forced to take in all of these you know and i say that in quotation marks the standard right Mm. the norm this is what a family looks like this is what the love interest looks like Mm. this is so i have been forced to embrace it and Mm. accept it why can't we just open up our understanding of what does that mean? What does that look like? And we focus on the core value. And that's the thing that I have always been uh, attracted to is like, okay, this story is about love. Mm-hmm. This story is about, you know, um, motherhood. This story is about friendship because at the end of the day, that's what I care about. You know? Yes, of course I see it. I see I see the story from the perspective of who tells it and probably, you know, like their lived experience will shape the way that the storytelling unfolds. But let's look at the core value because spoiler alert, we are all human beings. Mm. <laughs> Spoilers indeed. <laughs> um, I, I, I wanted to ask you about, uh, uh, alter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, just looking at, at at your website, it looks like you know you're working on Alter in 2019, which is like you know the year it. before. You know, <laughs> it's like all the hopes and dreams that we had for what was going to happen, the for what was going to start in 2019 and carry over into 2020. Um, so you started the the workshop of it in in 2019. Tell me about about the creation of the play and and what is it about. Um. Yeah, thank you. I I mean, Altar holds a very, very special place in my heart because of, I think that 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 play really changed the path of my career in so many directions, because that was my first time writing a play. Um, That was my first time doing a one person show. Um, So that took a lot of me and, and it was, I mean, I wrote this play because of this thing that I was telling you where 
I felt like I was not seeing myself represented on stage. So I wanted to write a story uh, about something that was close to my heart that I could be able to perform. And I, I actually, like, I I made the, the choice to make this a one-person show because I said, this is an opportunity for people to just focus on me, perhaps very selfishly, but I was so desperate and so frustrated back then in 2019 uh, at people not being able to see me, you know, beyond all of the things from the outside. So I wrote this play. I began writing it when I was in, in the UK. I was in, you know, as part of my studies, I had to go there to Harlow and do um, a term there. And I began writing it because there was a deadline for a festival that I wanted to be a part of. Uh, going back to spoilers, I didn't make it into that festival, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I So I wrote this play. It was a very, you know, a rough draft. I I was there with my class, um, uh, the class of 2019. And I had a friend, my friend, Robin Hoxer, who, you know, I, 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 I thought I was like, oh, she's very good at dramaturgy. And, and I mean, of course, at the time I, I, we were all very young and we were trying everything. And, and I said to her, well, I, I don't have much to offer, but would you, would you mind like, you know, dramaturging my piece? And, you know, in, in the beginning, it was just like very, very that, very like small. Um, then the play uh, got into another festival, mm. um, the, the St. John's Short Play Festival in 2019. And, oh, but the big thing about that was that, um, about writing that play in the UK was that I actually was ghosted by my boyfriend at the time. Mm. Uh, now, when I wrote this play, uh, Altar, I wrote it simply coming from the perspective of my curiosity at the time was to say, what would happen if I ever get to see all of the people that have ghosted me, all mm. of the dates that I have, you know, that have ghosted me, <laughs> what would that experience be like? And originally my intention was to have the ghosts talk about me mm. uh, as opposed to me engaging with them. So that curiosity came from that place. And then the thing about the altar, I was like, at the time, also like Coco, speaking about these um, right. Pixar movies, um, Coco was had just come out and I loved it. And I thought, well, there is already like a pre-knowledge of, of Dia de, de Muertos, Day mm. of the Dead, uh, because of this movie. So what if I just lean a little bit on it? Because, mm. you know, that's part of my culture. Um, so I thought on connecting something that was like personal to my experience and my culture with this curiosity that I had, which was, you know, this notion of being ghosted. And I thought to myself, well, what if I do write a play about that anyway? So that's how that plane came to be. But at the same time, when I was in, in, in the UK, my boyfriend was ghosting me at the same time, but I didn't know it. Oh. It wasn't until I came back to Canada that I was like, oh, did I just write? Yeah, that's my life. Uh, so that was such a, a, a hard, because then mm. obviously when I got here, my boyfriend at the time was gone and then I had to finish this play. Mm. <laughs> so um, it was a, a very, you know, like a difficult process, just like trying to deal with that. I mean, I, I took a lot of care um, to, you know, uh, for myself and, and, and my process to really, just like focus on the story without without it being too personal uh, in a way that it would be harmful. 
And then I, at the time, I was really good friends with uh, Megan Greeley. Uh, we had just finished doing a show, uh, a tour across the province. And, and then I taught, told her about my experience and yeah, she was very intrigued. So then I went to Montreal to visit her after our tour and I went there to finish my second draft of this play. And then I thought to myself, well, like she would be perfect to dramaturge with her experience as a playwright. And I also thought to myself, well, she should also direct it. Mm. As I said, like part of like my journey in, 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 in the community and in, in my practice has always been to make space for other people, even, you know, in my projects. So I thought that she would be a perfect director, but she just needed an opportunity. Mm. So that's why she, she, uh, you know, for that reason and more, like she's just like very gifted artist. Um, I invited her to, to direct it and, and she continued with the dramaturgy then. And then we presented the show and it was, I mean, Phil, I thought that I was like, I thought I was going to get a GG. I was like, oh my God, where was all of this? You know, like this play is the play that everyone was looking for. Why did I kept it from all of you, my fans? Uh, now, uh, did I mention that that was the very first play that I wrote? <laughs> um, so probably it was not that great. And actually, uh, it was not great. <laughs> it was good in terms of like, it gave me some sense of direction, but of course, I think what happened after that was that I reached out to the Research Center for the Arts Theater Company and told them, hey, would you like to produce my play? And they were like, hmm, let's talk about it. Hmm. So we had a, a really good conversation about the possibilities. One of the things that have always been really important to me about this play is this, like the impact of representation. I think that my work, again, focuses on, on really opening space for the concept of what a Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, piece, theater, or, you know, play uh, script looks like. And to me, I was thinking, well, this is a very Newfoundland and Labrador play. I mean, it's set in St. John's. What else do you want? You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it obviously it, it is interwoven with my Mexican culture, but that doesn't mean that it's only Mexican. Um, so part of that, thing that I wanted to do was to actually take it to schools, to high schools, because I, I believe that youth are, I mean, I say it as though I am, you know, like a fossil, but uh, youth is really shaping the future today. Mm. And if we are talking about these things, about queerness, about race, um, now I think that our future would look uh, brighter. Yeah. Uh, climate change, all of these things that are so, so, so important. Um, and, and then that was something that, that the resource center for the arts was really interested in, 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 um, touring it to schools. So then they, they decided to engage me in the development of like a longer piece, um, aimed to schools, to high schools. Hmm. But that was back in 2020. I was actually in Toronto. I was teaching at George Brown Theatre School with Jeanette, actually. Hmm. Um, And I was uh, at the gym, at the Y. (laughs) I was working out. I was having a meeting, you know, about like next steps with um, the the Research Centre for the Arts. It was so exciting. And then, you know, you Mm -hmm. know who came around the corner. And we were supposed to actually premiere the show in 2020. Right. Uh, so it was just like very disheartening because we were like, oh my God. Okay. Oh, okay. 
so 2020 didn't happen. But the great thing was that the, the Research Center for the Arts said, well, maybe we can continue developing the script because that needs to happen anyway. And I was like, great. Mm. So we had like a week long workshop in the fall. And that was my first time, like, I think like a year in between for me from like performing it to reading the, that draft again. And that's when I found out that the play was not as great as I thought it was. Um, it was, you know, like a year of me, like learning more about playwriting. I was um, dabbing more into dramaturgy as well. So I was like, okay, okay. So I found a lot of loopholes, a lot of things, you know, like also like poor writing period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that I think that the play took a, a, a leap forward. And then in the spring of 2020, we were going to to do the show and then the tour and we had a reset, uh, uh, yeah, well, the, you know, another wave of yeah. COVID. Um, so we had to cancel. And we decided at the time, we said, well, maybe let's just wait for 2022 this year. But luckily, uh, we were looking at doing a production of this show uh, at, in the fall of 2021, which felt unreal. And at the time I said, well, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. Mm. Um, but what we decided was to stagger the the um, like the main stage production and the tour um just because we we were really you know like trying to move this project forward and so we got to do and it was actually a really fun uh, coincidence that we got to do the show during um dia de muertos hmm. uh, it lined up perfectly with with the dates of um uh, well around the dates of hmm. day of the dead so we got to, you know, it was an opportunity for me not to only bring this play that was like personal to me, but also my culture to the theater. Mm. And it was so special to me to see the the the, the LSBU Hall welcoming and, and creating this um, community altar. I was like, wow. So it's not only like a play, it's also like this experience of people like trying to be a part and, and, and welcoming and uh, welcoming them into my culture as well, which was very, very rich. So like that was, you know, the fall of 2021, it was a, a great run. I learned a lot, you know, like mm. from, even from that workshop that I had in the fall of 2021, when I got into rehearsals, I was like, I remember like walking around the rehearsal hall with my scripts in hand and I would just stop and say to Megan, Megan, this makes no sense. I need to rewrite this. And you know, Megan was like, I was trying to direct you. No, don't do that. <laughs> uh, but uh, but she was very understanding being a playwright herself. Like she was like, oh my God, yes. And so that happened. That was the fall. And now obviously we're getting closer to the spring of 2022. And as you probably know, this girl called Omicron um, happened in December. Mm-hmm. So then our our in-person tour for this spring got pivoted mm-hmm. <laughs> did you th- did you imagine that in 2022 it would still be pivoting <laughs> uh no because when this th- whole thing started you know back in march of 2020 and i've thought about this a lot i thought two weeks we've got this thing beat and <laughs> two years later we're still yeah yeah, no, we're still we're still pivoting. But, you know, like, I think that what happened was that I was like thinking, you know, I think it's important to take this story out. One of the things and the reasons why I wanted to tour it in person and it was so important, you know, for us to actually delay it twice, um, it was because I thought that 
especially you have access to a, a myriad of, of things online mm-hmm. uh, where, of course, we get to see a little bit more diversity, especially in the past couple of years, uh, you know, on Netflix and mm-hmm. HBO and Hulu and whatever. But when it comes to stories about our community, we don't have access to that in the same way. So I really wanted to be in the room with these mm-hmm. students and say, hey, look, there is a queer brown person in your classroom and he actually lives in Newfoundland and Labrador. This story mm-hmm. actually happened here. You know, that was so important to me. Now, obviously, in a, in a digital version of the show, it's not entirely the same, even though we will still be doing like um, outreach and, and engagement with the students in a, in a digital way, mm-hmm. uh, because that to me is important. So for for this iteration of the of the play, we turned really into film, mm. into what are our our devices. We I think that Megan did a beautiful job. So Megan also directed the film version mm. um, with a mentorship by Ruth Lawrence, who's also an amazing theater person and film person. And uh, so basically, what Megan did so beautifully, in my opinion, was to really turn those theatrical devices that worked for theater into a film version of them that were completely different to what people saw on, on, on stage, but now they worked for this play. So really what people will see, like this version of Altar is actually very different from what people saw on stage. And that is exciting to me because then this play will serve in a very different way. And, and mm-hmm. the experience of people, you know, seeing this for the first time will be unique. And I think that's very important to me. That's great. The, I think there's so much, there's potential in, in digital productions. I also, you know, I, I, I feel like sometimes people think I shouldn't do it digital because then people will already have seen it. And I think about all the times that I've gone to see my favorite band play the songs that I already know and have. <laughs> and I think that, that if we would stop thinking about digital as an impediment to uh, live performance, but maybe an augment that, you know, people will still go see their people love to see their favorite comedian do the bits. They already know people like to see the bands play the songs <laughs> they know. So I feel like, like, you know, digital is a way of opening up our, our world theatrically. It, totally. It's, it's this thing about impact, which I find really exciting because, you know, like perhaps in person, I could have done 10 runs of this show, but now with a digital option, I can actually do, you know, like people can see it more. Mm. And I can also reach to people in Labrador that I have never been to Labrador. Right. And I mean, part of this, this um, tour was to go to Labrador, but at least I can make sure that, you know, the weather won't be a problem because then the students will have access to this uh, story. And yeah, so I, I, I agree with you. It's great. Well, Santiago, thank you so much for talking with me today. This has been wonderful. Oh my gosh. Thank you very much for for inviting me and and just, you know, talk a little bit. Mm -hmm.